You're here and looking forward to what the Lord has for us. We'll look in Psalm chapter 15 in just a second, but I'd share with you first of all what David says, or actually a different psalmist would say in Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. You know the passage, and you're probably familiar to you, as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. I hope that's true of you tonight. I, I hope you indeed are desirous of the Lord. He goes on, my soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Well, that's an interesting question that he comes to. In fact, if you were to read the entirety of Psalm 42, that question is, reverberates throughout the passage in many different ways. In Psalm chapter 15, the passage starts out with a very similar question, doesn't it? Look at chapter 15 and verse number 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Okay. This is a somewhat of a tie-in to our Hebrew study. We've been studying the tabernacle and such in Hebrews chapter 9 and, and moving forward and things there. And uh, this is kind of time. We remember, we understand that that tabernacle and the veil that prevented people from going to the Holy of Holies, prevented them from going into what was presented as the, the very presence of God. And so you see the statement here when he talks about abiding and dwelling, uh, specifically of the tabernacle, it's referring in the Holy Hill, referring to speaking of the very presence of God, being in the presence of God, enjoying, as the title of our message states, fellowship with God, communion with God. Now, many of our hymns might describe that. I think probably the one that comes to mind immediately in my mind of a hymn, singing of the fellowship and the communion with our God is in the garden, in the garden. And that description of walking with him, talking with him, just enjoying fellowship, just communing in, on some level and, and enjoying such a, a close-knit relationship, if you want to put it that way, or close-knit fellowship as such. The earthly tabernacle, as it's mentioned in verse number one here, Psalm 15, it represents the presence of God, the Shekinah glory between the cherubim and the ark, as we have studied in Hebrews, and to be near the ark, to be able to go into the Holy of Holies, it was an awesome privilege, it was one to be desired. Um, even though the veil is broken down today, the reality is, as Christ has made it possible for you and I to enjoy fellowship, close fellowship with God, many Christians find it hard to maintain a constant fellowship with God. Uh, it's disjointed, it's broken, it's, it's not continual. It, 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 is, it is not the same as it should be every single day. We, we don't enjoy the, the depth, the degree of fellowship that God would have us to do. Okay? It kind of slips through our hands. It's, it's not easily obtained for many of us as believers. It's not fruitful fellowship if we might describe it of that. It's funny because in Psalm, not funny, excuse me, it's interesting, Psalm 42. Paul, or excuse me, David there, um, in Psalm 42, in verse 4, after we read verses 1 and 2, in verse 4, he alludes to going into the house of God with the multitude of God's people and even observing the holy days, and yet he was not experiencing the fellowship with God that he desired. Now think about that for a moment. In other words, David says, I went to church. I observed everything that I ought to, I, the holy days and such. I, I was with God's people, and yet I personally was not enjoying the fellowship that I desire with God. The depth, the continuity, the, con, the continuation of fellowship with God that I desired. 
So it's interesting, these questions, both what David asked in verse 1 of Psalm 42, and now what we just read in verse 1 of Psalm 15 is really asking the same question, isn't it? Who can enjoy constant fellowship with God? How do I, as a believer, enjoy constant fellowship with God? How do I maintain that kind of deep relationship with my God? Well, the Psalms goes on, or this Psalm, excuse me, goes on to answer it. We put it in an outline form. Let's just kind of share that with you. Number one, the path that opens the door to constant or continual fellowship. The path that opens the door to constant or continual fellowship. What he first does in the Psalm here, David, he presents to us the positive elements or the positive steps along this path. That path that opens the door to fellowship. Here are the positive things. Look at verse number 2 of Psalm 15. It's a very small psalm. And uh, that's probably why we will be a little shorter tonight. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. Now those are all positive elements presented to us. It's really much, very much a universal principle that's given to us, right? Our fellowship with God, note it, the psalmist is saying it, David's saying this because he experienced it in his life. He says, I can give personal example, my fellowship with God at times was not very good. When I numbered the people, when I committed sin with Bathsheba, there were times my fellowship with God, though I was still his, I belonged to him, my fellowship was broken, it was not all that it should have been. Certainly there were other times in David's life that that was true. And so he says, listen, here's the positive steps to keeping the door open to constant fellowship with God. Uh, and he gives us several here in this passage. But yet he wants us to understand the principle. Your fellowship, my fellowship with God is greatly impacted by our walk, our works, and our words. You cannot separate the depth and the degree of our fellowship with God from our daily living. It is impacting it. That's what David says here as he just expressed in verse number 2. Let's put it and see what he says is necessary, the positive steps on the path to an open door to constant fellowship. Number one, okay, go through it really quickly, pursue uprightness, pursue uprightness. We won't spend a lot of time on this. We shared a sermon with you about uprightness a few Sundays ago. But to walk uprightly incorporates the Hebrew word, you remember, perfect. It is even translated, the Hebrew word, as perfect in other passages, okay? But I'd have you to know it means complete in all of its parts. Not having a defect in any one area of a person's life. That's what upright means. Our day-to-day living, we maintain uprightness. There's no defect. There's nothing in there that deviates from what we say we are, what God would desire, what God would want. It is pursuing uprightness, allowing that to mark my life. That's what God wants. That's the type of person that God has fellowship with constantly. Number two, if you'll look at it, the passage makes it clear. As I said, we're going through this rather quickly. Number two, pursue righteousness. The terminology in the verse is worketh righteousness. It simply means that you can be counted to do what is right. I can count on you. God can count on you to do what is right. With the work of your hands, what you do is above reproach. You can't find fault in it. You work righteousness. The doings of your hands, the the workings that you do, it's righteous as the passage here would describe. And David says that's the kind of person that God enjoys constant fellowship with. You strive for righteousness in all things. You make sure that it marks your path. Righteousness does. Uh, And this would obviously incorporate the New Testament where we are challenged to do good unto all men. 
that would certainly fall in this, as we'll see the whole context of the passage really um, shouts uh, being, uh, how we treat our, our neighbor and other. So pursue righteousness. Pursue uprightness. Pursue righteousness is what he says here in the middle. And then the last one, the last positive element of verse number two is this. Pursue truthfulness. Pursue truthfulness. He says what in verse two? Speaketh the truth. And did you see what he says? Not with his tongue. Not with his mouth. He says in his heart. Speaketh truth in his heart. You pursue truthfulness. It's not just outwardly. You first let it be from the heart. It fits perfectly with what Christ said in his Sermon on the Mount. Uh, To be a man after God's own heart, we must what? Have a heart like his. To be a man after God's own heart, we must have a heart like his. Now let me ask you a question. Who of, or who is it said of in the scriptures that he was a man after God's own heart? David, who wrote this psalm. He understands what it means to be in constant fellowship with God. He is the one that had a relationship with God in the caves as he's running for his life. He is the man who had a relationship while on the throne of heaven, he, or excuse me, the throne of Israel. He is the man who had a relationship with God while he was just a little shepherd watching the sheep and the bear attacked and other animals attacked. He, he had a relationship with God. He understood what it took, what was necessary for that constant relationship. Yes, he, he tripped up at times. Yes, he did not follow his own advice here. Certainly, he was man. Uh, he, was, he, he was imperfect. He was sinful. And so he failed at times. And yet, he's giving us the recipe, how you and I, the path, how we can maintain an open door of fellowship with God. Constant, fulfilling, fruitful fellowship with God. Pursue truthfulness. I like how one commentator described this person. I think that he put it in such words that are are hard to replace, so I share them with you. He says this, such a person professes nothing but what he feels and intends. With him, there are no hollow friendships, no vain compliments, nor empty professions of esteem, love, regard, or friendship. His heart, excuse me, his mouth speaks nothing but what his heart dictates. His heart His tongue and his hand are all in unison. Hypocrisy, guile, and deceit have no place in his soul. And I would say with such a person, God enjoys constant communion. It is a call to be real. It's a call to let truth reign, not just on the outside, but allowing it to spring where? Well, from a heart of truth. A heart of truth. I love the impetus of the passage. It's not just dealing with the words we utter. It's not just dealing with what we say and what comes out of our mouth, what our tongue uh, produces. It is literally dealing with what your heart, as we are reminded that out of the heart come the issues of life. Out of the, the heart, or uh, the mouth speaketh, the Bible says. And so it is true, as David confirms here. So let the truth mark you. These things, the the pursuit of uprightness and righteousness and truthfulness, that pursuit is part of the path of a door to constant fellowship. But he would add more positive elements. Look at verse 4, chapter 15, verse 4. In whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. Then he gives another description. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. This is a person who enjoys, verse number one, the answer to the question, enjoys that fellowship, right? So let's, let's just put it into word form if we might. Number four, 
properly treat the vile person. Now, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? As he makes it here in verse number four, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned. Now, the word contemned is synonymous with despise. That would be the word that we would use nowadays, modern English, modern vernacular, that we despise something, okay? That, that we just have very low regard. There's things in my life that I despise. One would be broccoli. Another would be Brussels sprouts, and I could go down a long list, okay? As a Purdue Boilermaker fan, I despise the Hoosiers, Indiana Hoosiers, okay? Some of you in here may be a Michigan State fan. You may say that about U of M. U of M may say that about Michigan State. There may be other things that you despise, tax season. Uh, we could list a long list of things that you and I might despise, that, that we look down on. We don't have anything to do with. We'll avoid it as much as we can in any way we can. That's the meaning of the word. In fact, the, the, a more concrete or additional thought is to regard with contempt. To regard with contempt. Okay? You ever, somebody just kind of curl their nose at something? Okay, they just don't like something, or they just kind of, they get that face where you know that they don't like it, right? Okay? And uh, you could hold something in front of somebody, maybe a snake or a mouse or something like that, and they'll show you if they have great contempt towards that. Amen? Okay, uh, they'll show you, I don't like it, I don't have anything to do with that. That's regarding it with great content. So the, the, the teaching here is clear, now don't miss it. It may not be popular, but it is pretty clear. Notice the, what we might describe here, a vile or wicked person. You say, Pastor Henry, what's a vile or wicked person in context? Well, the scriptures make it clear that a vile or wicked person is someone who has no regards for righteous or good things. They have no regard for righteous or good things, and they revile God and his truth. They, in turn, despise God. They, in turn, hold God in contempt. They don't, they don't have anything to do with God. They revile him and his truth. And you could throw, out, throw anything in, in description there, what truth that is and what it might be. They uh, despise those who live godly, who followed that God. And the Bible says that such people are to be despised, held in contempt by those who strive to be godly. It's not a despising that treatment of them. It's not a despising that treats them in a wrong manner, but it is a disdain and contempt for the wicked in their ways. Uh, that causes us to avoid both them and what they do. The world around us is full of vileness. It's full of wickedness. What's your attitude towards it? How do you view it? What's your response when something that goes against God's character? And that's really what we're talking about here. When we say something goes against God's word, who do we know is the word? Jesus Christ. He said, I am the word. So reality is, when anything goes against God's word, it goes against the very essence of who God is. Therefore, we can say it goes against the very character of God. How do you respond to that? When something pops on your television, when something comes across your, your, your radio, when something happens in front of you, somebody says something and, and does something, how do you respond to the vileness and the wickedness that you are confronted with? Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1 says the same thing, and it gives practical advice on how this treatment of despising the vile and the wicked would ought to look. 
Okay? Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, David starts out with, the psalmist starts out with, blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. I'm not going to listen to them. I'm not going to allow them to dictate how I live, what I do. I'm not going to take into consideration what their opinion is, what they think, what they tell me is best, what they value, what their affection is towards. I'm not going to allow that to impact me. I will not allow that to influence me. Number two, what does it say? Nor standeth in the way of sinners. I'm not going to go with them. I'm not going to join in with them. I'm not going to do the things they do. If I don't have anything to do with this. If, if God says despise it, I'm not going to stand in the way. I'm not going to join in. I'm not going to just go along with it. I'm not going to stand in the way with them. And then it says what? Nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. And it's hard to tell that there is a difference. When all distinction is erased between a believer and an unbeliever. When everything that should separate us and everything that we should have nothing to do with marks us and describes who we are, now we've got problems because you and I have not fulfilled what God called us to, and therefore we forfeit that path to the open door of constant fellowship. When we fail to despise or hold eh, regard with contempt those who are vile. You see, many Christians, many Christians have changed the word contempt in this verse to condone and our actions and our quietness and us just sitting by and allowing things to go the way they go and, and allowing it on our television and allow it in the movies we watch and allowing people to speak of it without speaking up and we have turned this idea of contempt into condone we just allow it to go we don't say anything we don't speak up we don't talk about wickedness and vileness we we we, we don't we don't raise our voice fear of uh maybe sticking out maybe offending somebody maybe whatever the case may be and so we've kind of traded in the word that is even here found contemned or contempt we've become way too desensitized to sin too accepting of the unrepentant boastful sinner who has chosen a life of sin and rebellion against god the Bible says they are to be despised and held in contempt. Psalm also provides, Psalm 101 verse 3 tells us what our attitude should be towards them and their ways. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. It will not stick to me. I will not have anything to do with it. I will not allow it to, to touch me or, or be a part of my life in any way. And yet we see play out in the world the culture around us. The vile, the wickedness, the sinners that want nothing less than to, uh, to revile God. And then in turn, what do they want to do? They want to draw Christians in, not for enjoyment, but to salve their conscience. To make them feel better about themselves and what they are doing. The world would love nothing else. Don't miss it. The world would love nothing else than to bring God's kingdom down to the world. To lower who God is and his sense of holiness and his sense of righteousness and obliterate it, erase it, so that there is no difference between the church and anywhere else on earth. There's no difference between the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, and the person who follows themselves, the old flesh. Satan would love that. The world would certainly love that erase any distinction to, to say, hey, why do we have... <laughs> What is the world erasing? It's erasing classification. Do you get that? We don't longer have just male and female. We'll add some more, and eventually we just want to erase it all, right? We want to allow everybody to compete together or whatever the case. I mean, you look at it. There's an erasure of classification, distinction. 
And my friend, the reality is the world wants there to be nothing distinct or unusual about the Christian. Can I just tell you tonight, even as we spoke on Sunday, the reality is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to stick out like a sore thumb in this world. You're going to. Because there are vile and wickedness that abounds in this world. And you and I are called to maintain an attitude of despising it, regarding it with contempt, not joining in. You see, we ought not to have companionship with the wicked and vile, and nor should we condone them or their ways. We ought to be people who call sin, sin, and wickedness, wickedness. Look at the contrast that's given in the verse. Number one, properly, or number four, properly treat the vile person, but number five, properly treat the God-fearing person. I like the statement here. He says you ought to honor them. You ought to uplift the person who's fearing God. In other words, say, you know what? I, I don't know if I should do that because I, I want to make sure God approves first. I want to make sure that this pleases God because I fear him above everything else. You can throw anything else at me, prison, jail, death. You can throw popular opinion. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter. You will never convince me to go against God because I fear God. You know what the Bible says? God has communion and fellowship with the person who honors the God-fearing person, who lifts them up esteems them, looks up to them, seeks their counsel, fellowships with the person who fears God. Not the person who has a foot in the world, a foot in the church. Not the person who condones the wickedness and the violence. No, this is a God-fearing person. Someone who loves holiness. Someone who loves their God. Someone who fears Him above all else. These are the people we are called to celebrate. These ought to be the heroes among us. These ought to be the people that you and I point to and say, now that is someone who pleases God. That is someone that I want to emulate. That is someone that I want to be like. The world celebrates and praises the vile person, doesn't it? The wicked person. The person who lives unto themselves. The, listen who, the person who fulfills every lustly desire or lust desire, every fleshly desire. We are called to properly treat the God-fearing person. Number six, you see it here in the same verse. It says this, properly stay true to your word. The statement in verse number four is this, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. This speaks to one's integrity, doesn't it? Integrity. It speaks to one's integrity. You ever promised something and once you got into it, you realized it was going to cost you more than you thought it would at the beginning? You promised something maybe to a child or someone else, and then you got to the point where they were asking for it or it's time to give it, and you realize, well, this is going to cost me much more than I thought, much more than I expected. Have you ever been tempted to renege uh, on your promise, to go back on what you promised? You realize God values being people of our word. You see the statement up here. If we say we will do it, we will do it. One has rightly said that the integrity of word is the bedrock of righteousness. The integrity of your word. People don't have to guess whether or not you'll keep your word. God values that. God says all these other things. I want you to be upright. I want you to be righteous. I want you to be truthful in what you talk about and what you do. I want, to, I want you to be a person who looks at the vile and wickedness, the things that go against my word, and I want you to hold it in contempt. The God-fearing people, I want you to emulate them. I want you to celebrate them. I want you to joyously draw yourselves unto them and then I want you to be somebody who keeps their word. People can take your word to the bank. And then you never you'll never go back on it. It seems to me more and more there's quite an epidemic where people will tell you or promise you they will do something, but they don't follow through. 
We're not talking about the occasional instance of something forgetting, somebody forgetting or something slipping their mind, but one who does it repeatedly and has no remorse over it. You see, our God is a very practical God. You see, God in heaven wants you to be, as his ambassador and as someone that he desires to have fellowship, he wants you to be a person of your word. What you say you'll, you'll do, you do it. What you promise, you fulfill. Your God in heaven wants to, you to be that type of person, wants me to be that type of person. He cares about the little details of life as part of this path that opens the door to constant fellowship. It's the kind of person that God wants to have fellowship. And the question begs itself, as David probably even asked of himself, am I that kind of person? Am I that kind of person? These are the positive elements, these six things, or the positive paths or, or steps along the path. Now I want you to see, letter B, the negative steps along the path. Look at verse 3. Here's some negative things. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Now this is a powerful statement. See, uh, verses 2 and 4 got some very positive things. I want you to, now here's some negative things. I, don't do that. Don't be characterized by this. The, the first one, would, we would term it this way. Avoid a hurtful tongue. Avoid a hurtful tongue. longer I live, the more I see why James said what he said about the tongue. It had great power. We have a great inability to harness it and control it in and of ourselves. We need God's daily grace to, uh, to keep it under control, to subdue our tongues so that we can use it for the glory of God. The term in the, in the passage here, in verse number three, the backbiteth, a backbiter. I love this definition. It's not mine originally. A backbiter is one who privately, secretly, behind a person's back, speaks evil of them, devours and destroys their credit and reputation. It's a good definition. Privately, secretly, behind their back says such things that is evil spoken of them and devours, destroys their reputation, and their credit, and not credit financially, but their credit in the eyes of others. In other words, their reputation, their ability to impact, their ability uh, to influence those people. The root word of the Hebrew word here, translated as backbiteth, I, I like this, the root word in the Hebrew, it, de- it literally means the moving about or moving of the foot, walking. So don't miss it. It describes a person who does this, but circulates and shares tales and slander and negative reports about others. Someone who makes the rounds to slander another behind his or her back. The backbiter is well known for being one who seeks out an audience. Uh, He or she is the one that can't help themselves, but continually tear down others. It's a hard character trait to get rid of. And yet God says, boy, if you want to have constant fellowship with me, it will not mark you. It will not be something that you are. You will not be a constant or uh, a backbiter, someone who does this. You won't enjoy the constant fellowship that you as a believer ought to enjoy and desire, strive for. More importantly, it's a person that will not have that consistent fellowship that we ought to hunger and thirst for, as David said. Now, what's interesting about this verse, there's a progression here, isn't there? He says, first of all, the person who hurts with the tongue. But then he says, if not dealt with, if you maintain a bitterness and anger, however, whatever's there underneath and motivates it, that hatred, the natural step, the next natural step is what? Doing evil. And so number two, we see you have have to avoid 
a hurtful hand. Avoid a hurtful tongue, but also avoid having a hurtful hand. Doing evil to one's neighbor is how David puts it here. Doing evil to one's neighbor. It's quite the statement. Okay, verse number three. It involves making things difficult. Uh, always going contrary to what the person is doing or wanting. Just flat out being mean and unkind to someone. It's the idea of causing injury, especially in word or deed. It's described as a person that has it out for someone else. They're just trying to you know, derail them. Um, look for opportunities to be mean, to show unkindness. Uh, and I like this statement here. person that is just like that is in no position to have constant fellowship with God. That's what the passage is saying here. Remember, we're starting out, verse number one. Who, who, can, who can dwell? Who can be in the tabernacle with God? Who, who can abide with Him? Who can enjoy the constant fellowship? And we have this description, the positive steps, and now we're looking at the negative steps that open the door uh, to that fellowship. A hurtful hand. Finally, the last statement of the verse, we are to be people who are not easily ready to receive slander, bad news, or gossip about others. In fact, we would describe it this way. Number three, avoid a hurtful ear. So avoid a hurtful tongue, avoid a, a hurtful hand, then avoid a hurtful ear. Notice it, the last part of verse number three, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Nor taketh up, receive it. Someone who gladly listens to words to intend to hurt someone else. So can I ask you tonight, could the Holy Spirit ask you, what do you do when, someone, when you hear something about the sin of another? The mistake, the, the slip up of someone else, do you find enjoyment and satisfaction in it? Do you yourself can't wait to tell others about somebody else's mistakes, someone else's sin, their uh, transgression? See, this is the opposite of being the person that always thinks the best of someone. One of the best statements, I believe, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we call the love chapter, it says, charity thinketh no evil. Charity thinketh no evil. It gives everyone the benefit of the doubt. I like to put it this way, if I could. Literally, someone who thinks the best of others. All the evidence must be in. In fact, in other words, they won't come to a judgment about someone else until they've heard every side. They know all the facts. The facts have been assured concretely. Okay? Uh, they have all the evidence and all the facts. And yet, even after that, they show pity. They show compassion. And they give their prayers. Such as a person that God would have continual fellowship with. Avoiding a hurtful ear. You see, the reality is this. Backbiters would not exist unless they had an audience. Gossipers would not exist unless they had someone to listen to them. Complainers have to have an ear. Malcontents must have a sympathetic friend to hear and entertain all their grievances. But the one in constant fellowship with God is none of these. They don't have an ear that will listen. They'll say, no, I don't want to hear it. I, 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 don't, don't share that with me. I don't want to hear it. You go take care of it that. Do, do it right biblically. Go handle it according to God's word. They're not a bandwagon backbiter. They're not a cheerleader for the gossiper. Nor is he an encourager of the malcontent. No, he's one that refuses to hear, refuses to take up slander, the gossip, the complaints, or the defamations against another. He is a person, a believer, that may disagree with others. 
yet he will never allow his sin nature to attack and hurt those people through his mouth, his words, or his ears. David said such a person is one who enjoys constant fellowship with our God. Here's a person that dwells and abides in the tabernacle in the holy hill of God. Look at verse 5, if you will. We'll see another one quickly, just the first part. He that putteth not, uh, or putteth not, excuse me, out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. We see two things here. Number four, uh, avoids the, the hurtful mouth and ear and hand. But number four, avoids seeking to make a profit off others. It's a little practical teaching here. We're instructed that those who put their money out there to make money off others through lending and charging exorbitant interests, uh, whereby they oppress others while making a fortune for themselves, they're not doing right. That's, the Bible's pretty clear about that. Someone who's out to make a quick buck off someone else, and no matter the cost, just want to turn the profit. The person is simply saying this, a, a person who takes advantage, and here's the basic principle, the person who takes advantage of others, and one who enjoys constant fellowship with God, that's incompatible. Those two things don't go together. If you're always constantly taking advantage of someone else, if you're constantly always looking to get ahead of someone else, if you're constantly just getting out of somebody all that you can get, without concern or care about how it affects them that's incompatible that is incongruent with someone who enjoys constant fellowship with god a christian businessman must find the balance to pursue both being profitable financially but also being spiritually right thinking of others, loving their neighbors, showing compassion and in righteousness, kindness even in the midst of business dealings. The Christian should be marked as such. God was pretty clear about it. I love what he instructed his own people. Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 37 says this, And if thy brother be poor, waxen poor, and fallen in decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him. Yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him. In other words, don't charge interest. Don't, don't make money off of him and his calamity, his tragedy that he's in. Don't make money off of him or increase. And did you see the next statement? But fear thy God. But fear thy God. That thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury. In other words, hey, I'll lend you that. Yeah, no problem. I know you're down in the dumps. I know you're hitting the rock bottom and you're going through a tough time here. Let me give you some money. By the way, that'll be a 50% interest. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's exactly what I said. Don't, don't give him your money. In fact, don't give him victuals. Don't give him food, right? Don't, don't say, oh, don't worry. I'll lend you some money for groceries. You can pay me back. Make it twice as much, but you can pay me back later. That's literally what it's saying. That's, that's don't take advantage of someone. You want to have constant fellowship with the God of heaven. Can I ask you this? Do you really think the God of heaven takes advantage of anybody? The only thing the God of heaven ever does is give freely. Give freely. Lovingly. Compassionately. Caring. And so God wants you and I to be just like that. He wants to enjoy constant fellowship with you and I who pursue, pursue, being kind to others and treating them accordingly. You see the verse, you probably already caught on to it. These verses, uh, a lot of them are all about our attitude towards and our treatment of others. And the second statement in this verse, specifically verse 5, the second statement says this, avoid biased judgment. Very practical. This is very real life, especially for the, the Jews in that day, but even for us. 
The verse instructs us that a person of constant fellowship with God will not receive a bribe against anyone. In other words, his judgment and his testimony cannot be bought. He doesn't have a price. You, you can't buy his loyalty, his allegiance, his, his, his uh, judgment, if you describe it as such. His, he's not controlled by the influence of someone else or through the promise of reward or favor or gain. The underlying theme of the entirety of this first part of verse 5 is this. He is a fair and just person in his interactions with others. He is a person of integrity that treats others right without malice, disregarding what's their position. What do they own? What can they pay me back? What can they do in return? How can they repay me for that? No, it's in disregard of all that. They just walk in integrity. It doesn't matter who they're acting or interacting with. It doesn't matter who they're treating. They treat them all the same. It's someone with personal integrity in their treatment of others. You see, my friend, this is the path that leads to the door that is open to constant fellowship. Look at verse 1 again, would you? Look at the question once more. Lord, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Who will, who will be in thy presence? Okay. Well, the product of the path or the product of such constant fellowship, we would say, is this. Now, it seems a little redundant. Let me explain. Letter A, the product of this path of the open door to constant fellowship is a perfect constant fellowship with him. Focus, and the key is on the word perfect here. I enjoy algebra equations because of their typically clear answers. When you can find both sides of an equation and they equal one another, you know you've done it right. When it doesn't work out and it doesn't equal, you know it's, it's wrong, right? I love equations and other mathematical calculations that have a concrete answer, that have a singular answer. There's a determined answer, if we might describe it as such. That's literally what we have here. In verses 2 through 5, we are told, you fulfill these things, you will enjoy constant, perfect fellowship and blessing. Here are the things that if you and I pursue, here are the things if you and I avoid, here's how we obtain that perfect, constant fellowship with our God. And the words of verse 1 are what give us this description of perfect. You catch the words, I've emphasized them time and time again, but he says, who will dwell? Who will abide? I think it's interesting, that idea of abiding, because we hear it in the book of John in the New Testament, abiding in him and producing fruit. But the idea and the picture of both abiding and dwelling is doing that with God. Constantly in that fellowship and in his presence in such a way that, boy, we just reap all the benefits. It literally is a simple promise, but a powerful promise. Here's how the door of fellowship is open. It's the Christian walk simplified. Yeah, some of this may be general, and we'll have to allow and depend upon God's Word as our instructor, the Holy Spirit as our interpreter, to know exactly how we are to think and act and speak and live. But the answer to the question in verse 1 is given to us in verses 2 through 5. Pursue these things. Avoid these things. Be such a person that does this. And as you do such things, you have the guaranteed promise of enjoying the fellowship with God, constant, abiding with Him, dwelling with Him. So the question for you and I tonight is, do these things characterize our lives? Is it a description of you and I? 
that these things, does it mark my life? Can I go down this list and say, you know what? Uh, best of my knowledge, by God's grace, I'm doing all these things. With his help, I'm, I am fulfilling every one of these things. Or, or as we've gone through them, has the Holy Spirit put his finger upon some and said, listen, right there, that's the reason you don't enjoy constant fellowship with the Lord. There's this person in your life, and boy, you, you've done this to them, you've treated them this way. Oh, that's the situation in your life where you didn't handle it right, you didn't act like one of my children, and boy, that broke our fellowship. Have been in constant fellowship. There's also a promise that is attached to this that is a product of that fellowship too. Letter B, you see it, it's this, a powerful life-anchoring stability. A powerful life-anchoring stability. Look at verse 5 again. We read the last part. It's a whole different sentence to itself. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Never be moved. Such a person will not be easily shaken in life by its trials and storms. They will not fall from being in God's house and God's promise. They won't, uh, they won't have intermittent times of fellowship and times of not having fellowship. They'll be able to stand against the attacks of the enemy. They'll be able to withstand and, and uh, those things. Think about it this way. If a person truly lives out these truths, there's no chinks in the armor. There's no areas spiritually where Satan could get an advantage and cause us to, to slip. You see, uh, one's actions are righteous when one's tongue is controlled. When one's priorities with money and wealth uh, are proper. When one's relationships are good. When one treats others with honesty and compassion and respect, then we enjoy constant fellowship. But all of these are areas in which Satan seeks to find a weakness whereby he can cause you and I to fall. Where he can cause our fellowship with God to be intermittent at best. We might often use the term, are you walking with the Lord right now? Literally, what we're asking is this, is your fellowship with the Lord all that it could be, all that it should be? Do you walk with Him? Do you talk with Him? Is He your constant companion and friend throughout the day? Is there uh, anything that comes up and how you treat someone? Is there any way that comes up and how you live that, that uh, kind of breaks that fellowship, that stops us from being and dwelling and abiding in the tabernacle on the holy hill as David describes it here? Is there anything that we might ask, what is the chink in your spiritual armor tonight? What is the thing in your life preventing the constant fellowship God desires you and I to yearn for and enjoy with Him? You see behind me, it is a castle theme. I already told you it's the knights versus the dragons and so forth. And so I would ask you this in lieu of that. Make sure, or I encourage you, make sure there are no chinks in your armor. Say, Pastor Henry, what's a chink? Well, by definition, it's just a small little hole or a little opening that weakens the entire armor of a soldier, the entire armor of an armored vehicle, the entire armor of a knight in medieval times. There's just a little chink in the armor. There's just the one thing that did not make it as good as it should be that, that weakened it in its entirety. Could I ask you tonight, according to Psalm 15, what's a chink in your armor tonight? What is it that's preventing you from enjoying the constant fellowship that God desires and that you and I should pursue on a daily basis? I am thankful that David presented this psalm to you and I. Challenged us and asked the question, but answers it in and of this one chapter. 
would you just tonight, as we go to prayer in a few moments, would you ask the Lord to reveal any chinks in your armor spiritually?